This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello and welcome. Thanks for joining us this week at the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. This is episode 170, entitled Mark's High Human Christology, Chapter 12. I appreciate you so much for joining us this week at the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Remember that you can access each new episode on our YouTube channel, which, for the sake of ease, you can remember it as youtube.com slash Biblical Unitarian Podcast. We now own the custom URL to get people to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast each and every week. It's easy to remember, and it's also easy to share with your truth-seeking friends. In this week's episode, we will look at three stories of Jesus in Mark chapter 12, each of which has a lot to say about Christology, monotheism, and Jesus' relationship to God. First, we will examine the parable of the wicked tenants, where God is, surprisingly, depicted as a human being. We will also see Jesus claiming to be sent by God. What are we to make of these intriguing details? Second, we will explore how Jesus defines the Lord God and see if Jesus expresses any plurality in the being of Israel's God. Lastly, we will look at Jesus' comments about the Son of David also being the Lord. Is Jesus identifying the Son of David with the one Lord whom Jesus previously regarded as Israel's God? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is the landowner and his son. I'll be reading out of Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the winepress and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed, and so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers, and will give the vineyard to others. 
Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. It's Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Now, if I were to sit and comment on every single detail of this particular parable, we could be here for two hours. There's just too much in here to discuss, but I want to draw on the implications of Christology, monotheism, and the relationship of those topics to Mark's gospel. So the first thing that is noteworthy is that God is clearly depicted in this parable as a man as a human being. You could see that in the first verse. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it. And the son of this human being is obviously Jesus. Now granted, in the typical Jewish parable involving a landowner and his tenants involved God and his people. And this regular depiction of God having this land, which is a vineyard, and having people that are working it and God looking for fruit, is actually drawing upon the poetic song of Israel as the vineyard from Isaiah chapter 5. So it was a common Jewish parable to where God and his people were described as a man working in a vineyard with various workers within the vineyard. So you can make the argument that, hey, God is described as a man within the Bible, but that doesn't prove the incarnation of God becoming human. Just an interesting side note. Now, the primary issue of this parable involves how the tenants who represent in the story the Jerusalem leadership how these tenants are not taking care of the land in the way that the landowner, who is God, approves of. In fact, these tenants reject and even do harm to God's agents. And so the story is about how God continually sends these agents to acquire the fruit that these workers in the vineyard were supposed to produce. So God sends a servant in verse 2, but they respond by beating God's agent. God sends another servant in verse 4, and this agent of God is wounded in the head and put to shame. Perhaps this is an allusion to John the Baptist, who was certainly wounded in the head. He was beheaded, and he was not given a proper burial, which certainly could be understood as shame. Now God sends more agents, an unspecified number, in verse 5, all of whom are rejected, and they are either beaten or killed. Now in verse 6, God sends one more agent. Specifically, God sends his son, his beloved son. And if the regular slaves who were sent function as agents of the landowner, then the actual son of the landowner would fully represent the landowner in a much more capable manner, since he is a member of the landowner's actual family, rather than just a simple 
hired servant. Now, in all of these instances of sending, the servant that is sent in verse 2, the servant that is beheaded who was sent in verse 4, the unspecified number of sent agents in verse 5, and even the Son of God sent in verse 6, they are all described with the same Greek verb, which means to send, the Greek verb apostello. There's no difference in sending when it comes to the sending of the Son of God when compared to the sending of the other servants. There's no indication in the parable that the landowner sent any of these agents from heaven as if they were sent by God from heaven and came down to earth. Sending within this parable simply means being commissioned for a task being authorized by the sender to perform a particular mission. So the fact that Jesus describes himself as having been sent would not have been understood by the original readers of Mark's gospel as a sending from heaven, as if the Son of God preexisted his birth and came down to earth from heaven. That's not how any of the other servants were sent. And the sending of the Son of God is described with the very same verb. Moreover, the Son of God is killed and he's rejected. And this proves that the Son of God was someone who was mortal, someone who died. Now we do need to talk about how the rejected Son becomes the new stone of a temple, which effectively would convey to the Jerusalem leadership, to whom Jesus is speaking this parable, that the rejection of Jesus will lead to their loss of authority in the physical temple because that temple is going to be taken away from them. Now, there is a well-known pun in the Hebrew language where the word ben, which is the Hebrew noun for a son, was punned with the Hebrew word eben, which is the word for stone. So you have ben and eben, and that was a popular pun. It actually appears in the Old Testament, and it appears in the New Testament. Even John the Baptist will say that God can raise up sons from these stones. The point is that the stone, which in this case, in Mark 12, is the stone of the temple, is understood to be the son namely Jesus, the Son of God. And so we have this pun between the Son, who turns out to be the stone rejected, becoming the chief cornerstone. Son and stone are puns. And it's impossible to bring this pun into English, which is why I am pointing it out here. It's something that Mark's readers who were familiar with this sort of language would have understood, but English readers often overlook because they're just unaware of this point. Now, in the parable where it talks about the rejected stone, this is drawing out of Psalm 118, which happened to be a significant psalm out of which the narrative in the previous chapter, Mark chapter 11, was cited because Jesus is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That was drawn from Psalm 118. But let's look at the one here in Mark chapter 12. This is actually drawn from Psalm 118, verse 
22, but I'm also going to read verse 23. And so the quoted section says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is Yahweh's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Psalm 118, verses 22 through 23. Okay? Now, there's a couple of points here that we need to make so that we understand what the psalmist is trying to convey and the force of this citation within the parable as it is displayed in Mark's Gospel. Now, in Hebrew, the word stone, which we see the stone which the builders has rejected, the Hebrew noun eben, and also the word corner, the noun corner for the cornerstone, which is the Hebrew noun pinah, both these words in Hebrew are grammatically feminine. And this is important because in Psalm 118, verse 23, where it says, this is the Lord's doing, the word this is also feminine. And where it says later in verse 23 of Psalm 118, where it says, it is marvelous in our eyes, that word it is also feminine. Meaning this transference of the Son of God becoming the chief cornerstone, becoming the new temple locus, this is the doing of Yahweh. This change in temple is something that God himself is doing. And this new temple, it, is marvelous in our eyes. It's not blasphemous. It is something that the psalmist is marveling at. So while it could be argued that this parable in Mark 12 depicts God as a man and that Jesus was sent from heaven, thus proving preexistence, it is more likely that Jesus is the son of the landowner who is commissioned for a task like all of the other prophets. This mission ultimately gets Jesus killed, proving that he is mortal and not some sort of immortal divine figure. And it demonstrates that Yahweh himself makes the Son of God into a new temple community. Let's move to our second point. Point number two, Jesus defines the Jewish God. Still in Mark chapter 12, we will look in verse 28. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself, is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far 
from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. It's Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. So this is really important. This is the part of the gospel where Jesus spends the most time describing his own monotheism. Shouldn't come as a surprise that Jesus, as a good Second Temple Jew, was a good monotheist. So when Jesus is asked about the greatest foremost commandment, he responds with the Shema from Deuteronomy 6.4, which says, Hear, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's how you will read it in the Hebrew. To where the Lord is God's own name. It is Yahweh. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. Now, there's a little bit of ambiguity within the Hebrew of this passage in Deuteronomy 6.4 because, and this is important, the verb to be, which gets translated as the word is, is implied, but the translator has to decide where to put the verb to be within the four phrases. So we have these words, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh, and the word one. And so the translator has to put in the verb to be to make sense of all that. Obviously it's implied, but where it's implied is open for a little bit of discussion. Does the original mean Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one? Or it's been rendered, Yahweh our God is one Yahweh. Or it could be, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. So there is some, admittedly, ambiguity within the Hebrew of the Shema within Deuteronomy 6.4. However, in the Greek translation found in the Septuagint and in the version that Mark uses for the citation, the verb to be, which is translated as is, does appear. And it indicates that the cardinal number one is the predicate. And so this offers two options. In the Greek, as we see in Mark 12, 29, and in the Septuagint, it could say, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or it could be, the Lord our God is one Lord. Remember that Lord here is just a reference to God's name, to Yahweh. But the number one, the cardinal number one, which is grammatically masculine, referring to one person, is the predicate because the verb to be does show up within the Greek text in a particular place. Now, the response of the scribe, who actually agrees with Jesus, seems to suggest that the rendering, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, is actually the correct translation. The Lord is one, where the cardinal number one, being masculine, indicates that the Lord God is one single person. Jesus defines God and demonstrates his monotheism by saying that Yahweh our God is one person. Now the scribe answers and agrees with Jesus. He agrees with Jesus' monotheism. 
He agrees with Jesus in the way that Jesus defines God as a single person because the scribe says, right teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, he is one person, and there was no one else besides him. Notice that singular pronoun. He, singular pronoun, is one person, and there is no one else besides him. One person. Now, this phrase where it says there's no one else besides him also seems to be a combined citation, probably coming from Deuteronomy 4.35 and Isaiah 45, verse 22. So in Deuteronomy 4.35, it says, Yahweh, he is God, there is no other besides him. And in Isaiah 45.22, God says, I am God, there is no other. So you combine this, that there is no other besides him, in reference to God, who is a he, described with singular pronouns he and I, described as Yahweh himself, it is clear that God is one person and there is no one else besides him. He has no equals. And this is the monotheism that Jesus teaches as a good teacher and that the scribe agrees with Jesus on. So Jesus and the scribe agree within this exchange, which is a rare moment of agreement between Jesus and a scribe. They both profess that the Jewish God demonstrated in the creed of Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 is only one person. Jesus does not teach a Benetarian or a Trinitarian God here. Jesus is a good Jewish unitary monotheist. And Jesus, of course, says that the Lord God is someone distinct from himself. Jesus does not claim to be this one Lord God. He wants people to honor and to love this Lord God. And he's pointing people to someone other than himself. However, Jesus is about to refer to himself as the Lord in our next passage. And in doing so, he's going to speak of not just one Lord, but two Lords. Is Jesus ready to throw out everything that he just taught about the greatest and foremost commandment in order to reveal a secret high divine Christology? Let's look at our third and final point, which is the risen Lord as David's son. We're reading out of Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 35. And Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. So here Jesus talks about David and says that David offered this particular passage. And it's often assumed that Jesus is only citing one passage. This is regularly taught as Jesus citing Psalm 110 verse 1. However, critical scholars of the Gospel of Mark have noticed that the end of the quotation 
which speaks of, quote, enemies beneath your feet, does not actually match the ending of Psalm 110, verse 1, but actually it matches Psalm 8, verse 6. This would mean that Jesus is offering a combined citation of Psalm 110, verse 1, and Psalm 8, verse 6. And this means that we need to look at both texts. So we'll start with Psalm 110, verse 1. Where in the Hebrew we have, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You can see the language there of a footstool for your feet. Okay, not enemies beneath your feet. So in this Psalm, Psalm 110, verse 1, we have Yahweh and someone else, distinct from Yahweh, described as my Lord. Now the phrase, my Lord, Adoni in Hebrew and Kyrios Mu in Greek, appears 195 times within the Hebrew Bible, and it always, in all of its 195 occurrences, refers to a superior person an exalted human being, sometimes even an angel, but it never refers to God. This is not God speaking to God. This is God speaking to an exalted superior person. God is the first Lord, which is Yahweh. And Yahweh speaks to someone other than himself, someone distinct from Yahweh. Now in the Greek, it gets translated as two lords. The Lord says to my Lord, but that first Lord is not the title Lord, it is God's personal name, Yahweh. And Jesus just taught that Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one person. So this second Lord, this superior person, referred to as my Lord, is someone distinct from Yahweh. He's not to be confused with Yahweh. Now let's look at Psalm 8 which is the second part of the combined citation. I'm going to look at a couple verses before the part that was cited. So Psalm 8, starting in verse 4, says, What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands, you have put all things under his feet. That's Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. And you can see the reference there to things being put under the feet of this human being whom God crowns with God's own glory and God's own majesty. Now, Psalm 8, and this is really important to understand, Psalm 8 was originally referring to Adam from Genesis chapter 1. And Psalm 8 depicts God's intentions for human beings, why human beings were originally created, and God's plans and purposes for human beings. Now, by using Psalm 8 to refer to Jesus, Mark, in his gospel, is demonstrating that Mark has what scholars call an Adam Christology. What is an Adam Christology, you might ask? Well, Adam Christology is where Jesus is portrayed in terms of the second Adam, who fulfills what Adam has failed to do, and in doing so, 
Jesus is the second human being. Adam means human being in Hebrew, and Jesus as the second Adam is the other human being who succeeds in the areas that Adam has failed. So not only is the risen Lord, who is exalted to Yahweh's right hand, distinct from Yahweh, but the risen Lord is a human being. He is a human being just like Adam was. And this is confirmed because the resurrection from the dead, which leads to the exaltation to God's right hand, proves that the one who was raised actually died and is thus mortal, like all human beings are mortal. Now, we've got to get back to Jesus' question. How can it be that David's son is called Lord? And the problem with this is that parents do not refer to their progeny as persons of a higher rank than the parents. David would not regard Solomon as someone who is ranked higher than David because David is the father and Solomon is the son. So Jesus is saying, how can it be that the son of David is also described as this exalted Lord? How can David call his son, and son of David, of course, is a messianic reference referring to the Messiah. How can the descendant of David also be David's Lord? And the answer to this is something that the Christology of the Gospel of Mark has been demonstrating throughout the narrative for quite some time. Namely, that the Messiah is both an anointed royal figure who is to reign in God's kingdom, as well as a suffering figure that dies in order to redeem humanity. Peter initially struggled to understand this, as you recall in Mark chapter 8. And now Jesus openly states the issue when he is teaching publicly within the temple. How can the messianic son of David who is to reign in the kingdom promised to David, also be the exalted Lord from Psalm 110 verse 1? Answer, the exalted Lord is exalted from resurrection. And thus, the Lord is someone who dies as part of the messianic vocation revealed by Jesus, according to Mark's narrative. So in conclusion, we have observed that the Gospel of Mark continues to demonstrate fascinating, nuanced, and colorful depictions of Jesus and God within the ongoing narrative. We first observed that Jesus defined his own commissioning, his own identity, and upcoming rejection unto death in the parable of the wicked tenants. In doing so, Jesus' sending was like the prophets who came before him. And his upcoming death will result in transference of power from the physical temple's leadership unto Jesus, who is to be the new locus of temple activity. Second, we noted that Jesus demonstrated his Jewish monotheistic commitment, 
by citing the Shema of Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 as one of the greatest commandments. In doing so, both Jesus and the Jewish scribe agreed that the Lord God is a single person. Lastly, we examine the statement about Jesus being both the second Lord from Psalm 110 and the son of David, which further emphasized Mark's Christology of a Messiah who is both the king of God's kingdom as well as a risen and exalted figure. We detected hints of Adam Christology in Jesus' scriptural citation, which further stresses the genuine humanity of the risen Lord who is exalted to the right hand of Yahweh. By portraying Jesus as the new temple, as a good monotheistic teacher, as the son of David, as the second Adam, and as the risen Lord exalted to God's right hand, Mark is expressing a very high Christology, but it is most appropriately regarded as a high human Christology rather than a high divine Christology. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Next week, we will focus an entire episode on Mark 13, verse 32, where Jesus seems to, on the face of it, claim to not be omniscient, teaching that only the Father knows the day and the hour of Jesus' second coming. How do scholars and internet apologists understand and explain this passage? Please look forward to next week's episode. If you enjoyed the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. If you'd like to offer a donation, you may check out the episode's description for a PayPal link. Thanks so much to our editor and producer, Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, you folks take care.